Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, and unfortunately, I am not joined by my co-host, Pastor Ryan, today. You guys had him for a couple weeks. Now you're stuck with just me. But, you know, one positive thing that will come out of this is that I don't have to sit here and listen to Pastor Ryan make fun of me for wearing a Michigan shirt while I record. So that is one positive thing. But eventually, the stars will align again, and we'll be able to record together but for now, you're stuck with just me. But Pastor Ryan did give us a couple weeks of, of awesome content. A couple weeks ago, he talked about Romans 9, which is undoubtedly one of the most difficult chapters in, in all of Scripture. And then last week, he talked about the doctrine of salvation and the issue of Calvinism versus Arminianism. And so he covered a couple of, of very difficult topics, and we're thankful for that. But this week, what I want to do is I want to get a, a little bit more back into the reading plan itself. This week's reading is Romans 15 and 16, and then the first three chapters of Ephesians. So what I want to do today is I want to try to kind of recap and, and wrap up the book of Romans as best we can, and then we're going to sort of introduce the, the book of Ephesians. All right, so let's let's start with recapping Romans. And, and I tell you, anytime I talk about the book of Romans, I always feel a little bit overwhelmed. It's so hard to do this book justice, but let's try to at least cover what we can here. So remember, the book of Romans, Paul writes this while he's on his third missionary journey, and he, and he writes it either in or, or near the area of, of Corinth. Okay, He's kind of on a, a three-month hiatus. He's got kind of a, a three-month break, and this gives Paul a chance to, to step back. You know, he, He's always going, he's always doing, but he has a chance here to step back and kind of reflect on his ministry and and reflect and, and regroup and, and sort of cast vision for where he wants to go from here. And if you remember, at this point, he's already done pretty extensive ministry in the eastern part of the Mediterranean region. So think, you know, Asia Minor, Macedonia, all of those regions. Now he wants to expand his ministry west. He wants to go to the western part of the Roman Empire. Now, before, Antioch was kind of his base of operations in the east. But since he's going west, he needs a new home base, so to speak. And the obvious choice is Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. So Paul wants Rome to be his base in the West. But if you remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the situation in Rome is that there's a lot of division going on between the Jews and Gentiles. Now remember, the Jews were kicked out of Rome back in 49 AD by the Emperor Claudius, Okay, 49 AD. So for a period of time, the church in Rome only consisted of Gentiles. So there was a temptation amongst the Gentiles to think that this new Jesus movement was only for the Gentiles. They, they were tempted to think that maybe, you know, God had moved beyond the Jewish people. He had given up on them, and this new Christian movement is no longer for them. It's for the Gentiles. But then in 54 AD, the Jews were allowed to return to Rome. So what you have happening is you have 
these various house churches forming in Rome, and they, they tend to be somewhat segregated. You've got the Jews over here, you've got the Gentiles over there, and they have some differing viewpoints, different customs, different ways of, of doing things. Okay, Now, remember Paul, at this point, he's never been to Rome, but he knows the situation there pretty well. He knows people from Rome, he knows Aquila and Priscilla and some other people, so he knows the situation. So he writes to the church in Rome for a couple reasons. One, he's he's trying to garner support for his future missions. Remember, he ultimately wants to go to Spain. He wants to expand his ministry west, and he wants to set up Rome as, as his base of operations. So in order to get support from the church in Rome, he needs to win them over. They need to know what he believes. So he, he's sort of writing out, here here's what I stand for. Here's what I believe. Here's the truth. So he's trying to win them over and garner support. But he's also, of course, addressing issues directly in Rome as well. Okay, he, He's acting as a pastor. He's not going to just write a support letter. He's also going to try to build up the church in Rome itself because he cares about them. So Paul's trying to garner support for his future missions, his future ministry. But he, he's also addressing specific issues in Rome, specifically surrounding unity. Because remember, we have a lot of division going on between the Jews and Gentiles. And this is probably Paul's most theologically complete letter. That's not to say that it, that it addresses every single issue, because it doesn't. There are certain topics that he leaves out. But in terms of the letters that we have in the New Testament, this is Paul's most complete, theologically complete letter. Now, in the first eight chapters, Paul really lays out the gospel, and, and these chapters are just incredible. There's kind of a, a single flow of thought. Now, he'll go in some different directions, but there's this overarching flow of thought through these first eight chapters, and it, it climaxes in, in chapter eight, which is probably one of the most treasured chapters in, in all of scripture. So he lays out the gospel in these first eight chapters, and then chapters nine through 11, they also kind of form one unit of thought. In these chapters, which undoubtedly are, are very difficult, Pastor Ryan talked about these uh, a couple weeks ago, but Paul really addresses two main questions. First, he asks, you know, has the word of God failed? God's chosen people, the Jews, they've rejected their Messiah. Has God's word failed? But Paul says, no, it's not God's word that has failed. It's Israel that has stumbled. But then he goes on and asks, well, has God rejected his people then? And we see this in chapter 11, verse 1. But he says, no, God is still faithful to his promises. He has not rejected his people totally. There is still a remnant saved by faith, including Paul himself. Remember, Paul is a Jew. So God clearly hasn't rejected all Jewish people. There's still a remnant, and God can and will save more of them, but he's going to save them through faith, just like everybody else. So Paul's main points here in these chapters, 9 through 11, he's basically saying God has done what he always said he would do. He's carried out his purposes through a remnant of Israel, and he has expanded his family to now include all people, to include Gentiles. So now all people, Jews and Gentiles, are saved by faith, faith alone, into one family. Everyone is one now. There's no more Jew and Gentile. We're all one. So remember, he's, he's addressing this because he's addressing issues of, of unity here. And he continues to address unity and, and relationships in a more practical sense in chapters 12 through 16. And I think the key verses here in this passage are in chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. 
He says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. He's saying, we're all just sinners saved by grace. So regardless of race or status or background, we're all part of the one family of God. We're all just sinners saved by grace. So remember, Paul is trying to unify the segregated and and divided Roman church. And of course, there's a lot of application for us here today as well. And then chapter 16, Paul goes into this this long list of, of greeting different people. And this may actually reflect the fact that there are many different house churches in Rome. Paul may actually be trying to address each of these churches individually. But when I think of Romans, there's a couple of things that come to mind. First is the gospel. Okay, When you think of Romans, think of the gospel. Everything in Romans centers around the gospel message. But then also think of unity as well. This is a very important theme in this letter. In light of the gospel, because we're all sinners saved by grace, now we're all part of one family. Regardless of our background, regardless of of race or anything else, we're all one. We're one body, and we should live in in a way that reflects that. Okay, so that's that's the Book of Romans again. It's very hard to do this letter justice, but at least that's that's some background for you. Now, what I want to do is try to give some background on the Book of Ephesians. So first, just a little bit about Ephesus itself. Ephesus was a a port city. In Asia Minor. Now remember, Asia Minor was one of the provinces in the Roman Empire. This would be like modern day Turkey, just for point of reference. And it's across the Aegean Sea from Greece. So if you kind of know where Greece is, if you go across across the bay, across the Aegean Sea, that's where Ephesus would be. Okay. And it had a pretty big population. The population was about 200 to 250,000. And it was considered the mother city of Asia, Asia Minor. And because it was a port city, it had access to a lot of major shipping routes, but it it was also a place where a lot of major land routes intersected as well. So this was a very strategic location for ministry, as was often the case. I feel like we say this about every city that Paul went to, but he picked his locations very carefully. Okay, This was a place where once the gospel was established here, it could very quickly spread out to the rest of the Roman Empire. Now, Ephesus was also famous for its idol worship. In Acts 19.27, we read about the goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility. And Acts 19 says she was the very one all of Asia and the world, the entire world, worships. So the entire Roman Empire was involved in, in worshiping this goddess, while the temple of Artemis was in Ephesus. And this is something you can actually look up. There's There's only ruins of the temple left today. But if you if you look this up on the internet, you can see reconstructions of this temple, the Temple of Artemis. And it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This thing was pretty impressive. Okay, So that's part of the context that Paul's dealing with here in Ephesus. And the city was also known for its magic and for its dark arts as well. So Paul was declaring war on darkness by going into Ephesus. Now, Paul visited Ephesus on his third missionary journey. You can read about this in Acts 18 and 19. And Paul spent several years there. This was his 
longest single stay in his ministry. Normally he was always on the move, but he spent a lot of time in Ephesus. And I think part of that was because it was such a, a strategic location. And it seems his ministry, at, at least at first, was, was very fruitful. If you look at Acts 19, 9 and 10, it says that Paul would take disciples with him and he would lecture daily in the hall of Tyrannus. For, and he did that for two years so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. Okay, so there were these halls where people would gather daily to listen to lectures. And this one was was likely named after the primary teacher, Tyrannus. He may have done his teaching in the morning, and then Paul likely came in in the afternoons, and he would do this every day. Now, when it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, that doesn't mean that every resident of Asia Minor actually came to hear Paul speak. What Paul was likely doing, remember it says that he brought disciples with him, He was likely training up disciples and then sending them out into the surrounding regions. So he was sending them out to plant other churches and and to go and make other disciples. So that's how, in a sense, all of the residents of Asia Minor came to hear the word of the Lord, to, to hear the gospel. But eventually, things begin to change for Paul. We know Paul begins to struggle pretty severely in Ephesus. Now, how do we know this? Well, remember, Paul writes 2 Corinthians from Ephesus. And if you compare 1 and 2 Corinthians, we, we've talked about this, the tone between the two letters is very different. 1 Corinthians is generally fairly upbeat. I mean, at times Paul is somewhat upset at the Corinthians, but he's, he's instructional in tone, and at times he can almost be humorous. And, and like I said, it's generally an upbeat letter. But 2 Corinthians is very, very heavy. Listen to how Paul starts off 2 Corinthians. He says this in chapter 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, Asia Minor. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So what happened there? Something changed with Paul between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And remember, he was in Ephesus at the time that he wrote this letter. Some would say that Paul was, was likely experiencing depression of some sort. Well, first, remember that at some point, the church in Corinth had kind of turned against him. They did not respond particularly well to his first letter. And then there was another, another letter that we don't have documented anymore, a severe letter. So he felt like the church in Corinth had turned against him. So he was going through that, but Paul also faced opposition in in Ephesus. There were some silversmiths who were upset with Paul because he he was causing so many people to convert to Jesus that people weren't buying as many idols. Think about that. His ministry was so successful that he was putting idol makers out of business. That's pretty cool. I don't know about you, but I want a a ministry that, that puts idol makers out of business. But the silversmiths, the guys who, who made the idols, they were not very happy. So they riled up the crowds and they caused a riot in the local theater. So there was a theater in Ephesus. This is pretty remarkable. You can still look this up. It still stands today. This theater could hold up to about 25,000 people. Okay, So this, this thing was impressive. And there were probably tens of thousands of people at, in, in this riot. And they dragged some of Paul's companions there. 
Now, Paul wanted to speak to the crowd, but the other disciples wouldn't let him because they were afraid for his life, rightfully so. So you've got this giant crowd in this theater, and they're all riled up, and they're chanting for hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're, they're chanting about Artemis. Now, eventually the crowd dies down, but some scholars think that Paul was actually imprisoned at this point, and he may have actually been charged with blasphemy against Artemis. And this, this was a charge that could have even potentially meant death for Paul. So this is likely part of, of why Paul is struggling here. Paul thinks that this could be the end. We, we read in 2 Corinthians, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul thinks this could be it. And it also seems pretty clear that he's, he's facing some spiritual attacks here in, in Ephesus. And you're going to see him address this in the letter of Ephesians. He talks about how our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and authorities and, and the rulers. It, it's ultimately against the spiritual realm. It seems pretty clear that by Paul going into Ephesus, which was a, a dark place, he's kind of stirred up a hornet's nest, so to speak, in terms of spiritual opposition. And this is something that we need to keep in mind as well, that anytime we try to do something meaningful for the kingdom, we're often going to face opposition, spiritual opposition. So Paul is going through some dark times. He doesn't know if this this could be the end. He seems to be facing some spiritual attacks. And so he, he's really struggling. And I think this is a time that, that shapes the rest of his ministry for the rest of his life. And so the letter of Ephesians is written while Paul is in prison. Now, most will say that Paul was in, imprisoned in Rome at this point when he writes the letter. Remember, after his third missionary journey, Paul goes to Jerusalem to deliver the offering that he had been collecting. While he's in Jerusalem, he gets arrested, and he eventually gets sent to Rome to stand trial. So many people think at that point, when Paul is in house arrest in Rome, that's when he writes the letter of Ephesians. But he also could have written the letter in prison in Ephesus itself. Uh, But regardless, we know that he wrote it at some point when he was in prison. It's called one of the prison epistles, along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He wrote all four of those letters while he was in prison. Now, addressing the letter a little bit more itself, in verse 1, we read, To the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, some early manuscripts, some of our, our best and earliest manuscripts, actually don't have the phrase in Ephesus. And also, you'll, you'll notice this letter is a little bit more generic in a sense. There aren't really any personal greetings, which is kind of strange if you think about it because Paul spent so much time in Ephesus. He spent three years there. So for him to not include any personal greetings seems somewhat strange. So because of those facts, a lot of scholars think that this was possibly a circular letter, meaning it was something that was meant to be spread amongst various churches in Asia Minor, not just the church in Ephesus. It was maybe the different churches that that Paul had planted while he was there in Ephesus or that other disciples had planted while he was there in Ephesus. It's also been shown that Ephesus controlled a pretty large network of outlying villages and rural areas. So again, it's likely that in some sense this letter was meant to be circulated around to different churches and different groups of people. But regardless, undoubtedly the saints in Ephesus were at least some of the recipients of this letter. And they would have been, the church in Ephesus would have been the most prominent recipients, in a sense, 
of this letter. Now, getting into the structure of the letter, the first three chapters are more theological. Okay, so there's two main sections to this book. The first three chapters are more theological and just full of, of amazing doctrine. Then the second half of the letter, chapters four through six, are a little bit more practical. So in chapters one through three, you're going to see Paul opens with a, a hymn of praise, praising God for, for choosing us and, and redeeming us and how he has sealed us with his spirit. And then chapter two, he gets into how we're, we're saved by grace through faith. We were dead in our sins, but God, two of the best words in all of scripture, but God has made us alive through Christ in grace. We're not saved by works. He's very clear about this. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And because of that, because because we're all just sinners saved by grace, we're all one in Christ. We're all part of one family. We're all sinners saved by grace, whether we're Jews or Gentiles or whatever our background. So again, he's addressing unity here. And then he ends this section, chapters 1 through 3, by praying for the saints. And then again, chapters 4 through 6, these are a little bit more practical. He starts chapter 4 with the word therefore, or depending on your translation, it might say, I urge you then. So what he's saying is in light of these great, huge truths that we've just covered in the first part of the book and the first part of the letter, here then is how you should live. Okay, so the second half of the letter is a little bit more practical. But that's all I want to cover for now. We'll get more into the specifics of the letter and especially chapters 4 through 6 next week. But for now, remember, we want to help you get into the Word until it gets into you. And we want to equip you so that you can go out and you can be a world changer.